0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Hello, my name is Aaron Decker. It's uh, March 7th today, and we have uh, Professor Klaimer with me. Uh, we both work in, in Rotterdam, so it's uh, kind of an odd setting for the both of us because we uh, flew all across the, uh, the ocean, but I'm actually here for an entire year as a postdoctoral fellow with the uh, F.A. Hayek program, and Professor Klamer is a professor of cultural economics at Erasmus University in the Netherlands. He's the author of several books, the most famous of which is uh, perhaps the one uh, in which he interviews economists, conversations with economists from the 1980s, and uh, he showed how personal relationship tactics and strategies were employed in theoretical debates. And out of that work grew his concern with the rhetoric of economics and the way in which graduate students in economics were taught. The most important result of that work was his collaboration with Derde McCloskey, which re- resulted in several edited volumes on the rhetoric of economics and a great article uh, called One Quarter, One Quarter of GDP as Persuasion and a book on graduate economics education, The Making of an Economist. And more recently, his book uh, Speaking of Economics uh, how to get into the conversation. Later, his work, uh, part of his professorship at Erasmus, brought it in to include culture, the study of cultural economics, entrepreneurship, and more recently, the importance of values, which is the subject of his forthcoming book, Doing the Right Thing. So I'd like to start there, Professor Klamer, uh, with your forthcoming book, uh, Doing the Right Thing. What is it about?
2: Well, the title says uh, a great deal I hope about doing the right thing. Uh, the subtitle is a value-based economy and it basically asks uh, the question um, uh, and the question of individuals, but also organizations, uh, but also governments is what's the right thing to do. And my argument is, is that um, for all, in all levels, uh, the realisa- it is about the realization of values. So the question that I can ask myself, but also a director of an organization can ask himself or the president or uh, uh, prime minister can ask uh, him or herself is, um, um, what's important? Uh, what is all this, this all about? And then you are going to articulate your values. And then how I'm realizing those values, how I'm making real or... A term that I like to use, how do you valorize it? So if um, I want to, say, uh, want to realize a family because I care about it, I like to have kids, I like to have a wife, uh, that's apparently what's important to me, then I have to figure out how to valorize it and that usually involves developing relationship but also uh, uh, the sources like money to vi- finance it. So I think about everything that's needed to valorize that. And that's what the book is about.
1: So if it's uh, about values and about doing the right thing, would you still think of it as a book in economics or would you feel that it's a book in ethics that you're currently working on?
2: No, I think that the, that uh, in bookshops it will be put under ethics. Um, but my really... Um, attempt is to sort of restore economics as a moral science, which it always was till about the 30s of the last century when it became more a in technical, instrumental science um, to serve uh, economic policy. But before that, it was much more a way of reflecting on a part of life. And uh, for a while taught by, uh, by ministers, by the way, uh, but if you c- certainly look at the work of Adam Smith, uh, that really combines uh, ethical thinking with the thinking of uh, societies and the markets that take place in those uh, societies. And um, it's also Keynes that still argued that economics is a moral science and that means, in my terms, about doing the right thing. And uh, yeah, that we lost that in the last uh, was it 80 years doesn't mean, therefore, that it is not pertinent to economics. So I, I really, um, maybe it is audacious and a little bit arrogant to think that you can do that, but uh, I would like to recover uh, economics as a moral science. So
1: if the book is um, above ethics and economics sort of as they as they should be together. Does that mean that the book is very critical of economics as it's currently practiced? Or does it even seek to bypass it? Or is it mainly uh, an effort at reconstructing an older tradition? Or how would you describe it?
2: Yeah, I try to stress the positive uh, part of it. So if you read it, that you really get a sense of what doing the right thing is, and what gets involved in doing the right thing. yeah, but implicit and sometimes explicit is a critique of, of standard economics, as I call it, um, because uh, I think that standard economics uh, narrows the discussion too much by focusing mainly on the markets and the logic of the markets, um, whereas uh, in my book uh, you get a much broader picture, uh, including uh, also sphere of governance, but also the social sphere, uh, the sphere of the oikos, or the home, as I call it, uh, and then the, the cultural sphere. So I basically uh, expand the picture of, uh, of economics, and that you could consider to be a critique of standard economics. Uh, I prefer to stress the positive. Uh, that's an expansion, uh, and therefore uh, includes sort of the results of standard economics as just... Uh, a special case.
1: And if we're thinking about ethics, is there a particular tradition in ethics that you try to draw on, or is it also critical of some of the ethical thinking that goes on in philosophy departments?
2: Yeah, my the ethics, at least if I, by articulating doing the right thing, is, um, as far as I can figure, is sort of an Aristotelian approach. Uh, there's a lot sort of revival of virtue ethics, the realization that ethics is about <laughs> The right behaviour and right behaviour is that you act according to certain virtues um, and directed that's important too because that's what Aristotle describes in his ethics, also directed towards a good life and good society. So I uh, I'm I'm stepping in that tradition.
1: And so if we think about this book as being part of your entire career, right? You're uh, moving close to at least what the official uh, retirement age is in uh, most countries. How would you uh, think of this book in relation to your earlier work on the rhetoric of economics and uh, the way economic students are taught?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that this is a combination of all the work, Um at least, uh, if I sort of look back, I, I think I always wanted to write this book, but I was not able to. I was sort of first sidetracked it because uh, try because when I studied economics, I was sort of quite puzzled by what I encountered, and that sort of compelled me to reflect on it. So I did a lot of methodology and philosophy economics, and the conversations came out of that. Uh, but of course, also the work of uh, on rhetoric, but there too, you could see that rhetoric by recognizing that people, that economists engage in talk and, and do much more than, than applying logic and bringing in the facts, so to say, but that they also uh, use metaphors and tell stories. Uh, I actually make a similar move by, um, by going beyond the logic and to suggest that, it is, that, that you have to consider the context of the conversation in which they operate and that, you, uh, that we uh, might want to speak about conversations. Um, and then later I realized that, that if we think that economists are rhetorical and use them for a variety of, of uh, uh, ways of tropes, you could say, in rhetoric, but to, to make their point... Then for me, it was sort of a small step to think, well, hey, but that same goes on in the economy. Uh, when you listen to traders or consumers, for that matter, um, entrepreneurs, uh, that they argue and they don't do so only on the basis of lodging of facts, but they also use metaphors. So I worked at that time uh, with Theodore McCloskey, uh, then still Donald. And then we had discussions about it. So, said, well, wait a minute, if he... Uh, Attribute the rhetorical skills to economists. Why wouldn't uh, the peasants, as they were studied at that time, uh, or just merchants, have the same, um, even more so? Uh, and so then the step for me was pretty uh, easily made to go from the rhetoric of economists to think about rhetoric as it operates in economies. And then I got this job. Uh, as professor of cultural economics, and then was compelled to bring in culture into the discussion, which is not a term that standard economists use. And that also broke things open, because then I was compelled to think about the world of the arts. So I moved away from reflecting on economics, but studied the actual world. And, in, and that sort of led to this book, because that really is a different way of looking at uh, at economic processes
1: so it seems that meaning then becomes the the most important thing to study right uh, economists economists themselves they uh, understand the meaning of economics in a of economic actions in a particular way and there's a seems to be a rival understanding of what people actually do in the market right I remember a, f- a famous episode, I think, in the history of economics when some, uh, one economist, I forget his name now, uh, started doing surveys of what business bu- businessmen actually uh, attempted to do, and they didn't seem to care that much about profit, and their pricing strategies seemed to be, seemed to rely very much on rules of thumb. So is that the sort of work that is important for your current perspective?
2: Yeah. Yeah, because you can... Um See uh, economists used to look at markets as, as instrumental so uh, and then calling a price is simply an uh, instrumental way of uh, as part of making the deal um, but when you study it as you just referring to at particular situations then calling a price can be loaded with meaning uh, if you point to a bread and say i pay uh, i would pay uh, $100 for it then clearly something is going on, that someone is saying so. But if you tell an attractive woman and say, I pay $1,000 uh, to spend the night with you, then also that is uh, in a market setting a normal thing to say, but clearly in this setting rather strange, if not obnoxious and uh, and disturbing and offensive. Um, and so you always have to interpret things in their context, and they derive meanings from their context. It's very strange to go up uh, to uh, your wife and, uh, and ask her for a ride to the airport, and that she says, well, that's fine, but uh, I charge $50 for that. That would be strange. That's yeah. not what you do in a setting like this. She might ask you to reciprocate in some way or another, but not in this way. Whereas, of course, in other settings, would be perfectly logical. Um, but likewise, I say, if you go to a shop and say, well, I'm hungry, uh, can I get some uh, 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 bread out of your shop? Um, that would be illogical, certainly, if you're not going to pay for it, whereas it would be the perfectly logical thing to do if you're a kid in a home and you're hungry, you just grab for the bread and, uh, and eat it. And that's what I mean to say, is that, that mean, these words have meanings that make sense in one setting and become illogical or offensive or silly or stupid in another setting.
1: I want to uh, go back to um, perhaps a, a particular episode that I uh, haven't experienced myself, but that's sort of the, the late 80s, early 90s, when there seemed to be a kind of kind of unique historical moment in economics with a lot of self-reflection. Yeah. Uh, and there were a lot of heterodox schools who were claiming that neoclassical economics was bankrupt, but there also seemed to be a feeling, which I think in retrospect is somewhat justified, that neoclassical economics was experiencing a kind of crisis and a transformation period, and... Um, it's now far more empirical, where it was much more theoretical. Then, um, of course, all these people were trying to talk to to one another, um, sometimes very uh, very aggressively, sometimes very dismissively of others. Um, so I gather that that must have helped shape your current perspective as well. Those sort of mythological and philo- philo- philosophy of economics debates that you referred to earlier.
2: Yeah, no, for me um, uh, the. I mean, Of course I started already in the 70s uh, when there was also a lot of ideological discussion and I became part of a movement of uh, that was trying to reflect on the discipline of economics and that was also inspired by all these disagreements. And so I think we all try to figure out what kind of sciences this economics actually is and and, and uh, how does it develop and, and why does it improve or not? And how come that these different approaches? And then uh, you refer to uh, the period in the 80s that, that economics was becoming more theoretical. Um, and then David uh, Cullen and I did this book that you're referring to, The Making of an Economist, that first came out as an article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. Uh, what well, we actually did is interview graduate students at, at the major schools and uh, we found, actually, that they perceived that the main guarantee for success is to be good at problem solving um, in mathematics. And that empirical research was very lowly valued, teaching too, by the way. Um, and what's, even what's stunning the outside world is that these students said that knowing the economy was of no relevance for their work. Uh, most most people, journalists, sort of are flabbergasted by that, and the economists wrote about this result. It was kind of nice for us to to get that uh, hearing, and then the profession responded by installing a committee to review the graduate program. And whereas we thought that the students were really uh, asking for. Uh, better writing skills, more historical consciousness, more reflection on the discipline. Um, The the outcome was actually that the selection was more strict on uh, mathematical uh, aptitude. And so to prevent all these students coming in who may be more sort of inclined to think about the profession
1: yeah so the real problem was a selection problem not a problem with the profession yeah
2: that's how it was interpreted and um, and that's also how the practices change uh, and to me that of course led to the the major disappointment that when I now go to graduate programs and start talking about methodology and philosophy it's just like we are thrown back in the stone age that uh, their awareness of of methodological and philosophical issues is virtually non-existent or if it exists, it's it's a very sort of outdated uh, methodology, sort of a physics, an old-fashioned physics sort of idea of science. Uh, no reflection, no idea of Kuhn and Lakatos or Popper or you name them. Uh, certainly not of rhetoric. Um, so in that sense, um, we lost it and, and it seems that the profession has hardened, I use another term, is becoming more modernistic, um, although without a real belief in what the purpose of it, because the old modernists uh, really believed that they were going to change the world and make it better. Uh, I don't see much of that, although it is changing again. Uh, if you see that that um, that there are new approaches emerging, I mean, behavioral economics has sort of... Um, evolutionary economics feminist economics more or less um, and more interesting though is that you see in new movements I think about the Steve Levitt approach uh, sort of that we that theory is being sort of squeezed out or lost and uh, empirics sort of takes over um, and if I oversee the field I I get a rather uh, chaotic uh, picture. Uh, uh, All kinds of things are happening, but it's not clear uh, what the purpose is. Uh, When I studied economics, it was really clear that we were uh, intent, uh, the the intention was to change the world, to make it better. Uh, I don't see that very clearly right now.
1: Well, there is, of course, the um, the modern work which uses uh, methods deriving from medicine uh, as well. Right. The the ra- randomized control trials. And these people are engaged in um, yeah, quite big engineering processes to improve school systems and the like. So perhaps that's something where there's still a sense of purpose, at least.
2: Yeah. yeah I did this one. I, I, I don't know. Um, but again, I, I do think that, that um, um that some discussions that I see happening are indeed indeed focusing on policy and so on. Uh, but here I make another point though. And um, and that's the question is what what is the purpose of the science of economics? And that goes back to my work on the and the speaking of economics, but as also what uh, propelled me to right doing the right thing is, and also I do now political work and I become more aware of it. That actually, it's very hard to justify the science of economics in its own terms. Uh, to talk about added value or productivity or uh, uh, economic impact, uh, it's very hard uh, to justify all the work that's done in economics uh, to show that it has sort of a productive outcome, uh, like improves the performance of the economy. At the least, you would expect that if all these economists are doing the work, that it contributes to economic performance. Well, that happens. We cannot show that, that that's the case. Um, Some work has been done. To, 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 to do so but it has not been successful so that means that we are really left uh, unsure as to um, what, um, what the contribution of economics is and I concluded from my research that economists don't contribute with their, uh, the results of their research uh, the outcomes of their research uh, with the empirical results uh, that they are now so keen on Uh, but more through meanings, by by introducing terms that politicians use. That's one. So I I see it works more by meanings. But second, I find it actually also strange that all this effort of all these uh, economists and all these departments and and, uh, think tanks and so are all uh, directed at policymakers who seem overall to have little use for it, because that's what I observed, that all this work comes to nothing, and many economists who have worked in the corridors of power also tell that they are easily squeezed out or uh, ignored at the table, uh, and lawyers uh, then taking over. It's also my experience, by the way, uh, that there is no patience for these kind of economic arguments. Um, so why then targeting the policymakers, Am I thinking that's the only reason for doing science? In doing the right thing, I constantly uh, I, I say, well, there is 99.99% of the people do something else. And uh, like running a business or running a life or running a career or being a professional or exercising a craft or whatever, uh, can economics not also be of service to them? And I speak uh, about economics as having uh, science in general having a therapeutic effect that it raises questions that people otherwise would not think of. That's the therapeutic part. And then I think the task of us uh, scholars is to to create a framework or design a framework that helps people to think about these questions uh, and in some way or another give direction to their life and in my picture that's more than just doing a cost and benefit analysis um, and so i try to develop concepts that are really helpful i hope to people running their lives
1: yeah so we are here at the uh, the fa hayek uh, program um which um very much studies the austrian tradition what to you is these is, is the important meaning that comes out of... or the impo- important concepts
2: that come out of the uh, the Austrian tradition. Yeah, I've been in discussion with uh, Austrians uh, actually uh, 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 many years. And uh, I yeah, considered uh, Donald Voyer, my intellectual friend. Um, and what I always liked in these discussions is... Um, that it was open for processes uh, beyond the sort of strictly instrumental processes that uh, neoclassical economics uh, deals with. Um, And that with Don, we often discussed uh, the interpretive processes that involved in markets, uh, that you have to read prices and interpret signals. Um, And that also he was sensitive to the idea of language, the way it operates or how persuasion operates. So uh, I discussed with him this article about entrepreneurship, be, entrepreneurs being ent- uh, persuasive as a special skill. Um, so that openness was clearly there um, and it's still still here. And um, But the same is when I read uh, uh, people like Hayek, um, Hayek, uh, Mises, uh, I find a great deal in common with what I do now. At the same time, and that's what is, um, I do think, and that's my critique, that Austrian economics is preoccupied with the logic of the market and sees uh, a great deal and tries to reduce a great deal to that logic, uh, that self-interest behavior, uh, the invisible hand, uh, and also when it leaks, looks to public domain, uh, like a public choice, applies that market thinking to those other settings. And that I, I don't follow. Uh, I do think that there is a logic of the market, but next to it there is a logic of governance, and that works differently by rules and by programs and by law. And then there is a social logic. And I have especially different discussions about what the difference between the market logic and the social logic is. And social logic is based on informal relationship, is based on the principle of reciprocity, uh, but also involves sharing. Um, and that means that uh, in the social sphere, you engage in things like friendship. And friendship is a typical example of sharing. Uh, it involves in, uh, reciprocity uh, because you do things for your friend and your friend does things for you. But in the end, the point of all that is the shared uh, good, as I say, friendship uh, that you both own, in a sense. And I claim that these goods are the most important goods. I think also of knowledge or music or community or colleagues. Um, and these are all goods that you share with others, inevitably. Um, for many people they're very important, but you cannot buy them in the market. The government cannot arrange them, it's really something different. And if you think about friendship and reciprocity, the imp- has some, and I have then discussions with, uh, with Austin, say, yeah, but in fr- friendship you also have exchange, just like in the market. I say, yeah, it looks like a change, but it is not really. At least not, certainly not in the market. And one is that I uh, do something for my friend. Um, we don't argue about the terms of trade. We don't have a unit of account because that would be not logical. Uh, so I can do even a great deal for my, my friend. But we leave the 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 counter gesture undefined, on purpose, ambiguous. And it may even that he does something for me years later. Um, and in a way that is not very clear how that compensates what I did. Uh, but that's what, what friendship is about. Uh, that you leave these things in the open. And it requires a lot of practical wisdom. I call that phronesis to deal with that. Because it could be that you do more for your friend than your friend does for you. And at one point that's the end of the friendship. Um so it requires sort of practical wisdom to negotiate uh, what is means to give enough not too much not too little and that is a logic that's critically different from the logic of exchange as we know it in the market
1: so in talking about uh, society and friendships and 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 the household it seems that you are your work is actually quite close to another central concept from Austrian economics, which is the notion of a spontaneous order, and uh, one could add that people voluntarily associate with each other yeah. and they form orders. I uh, remember Roger Scruton uh, writing about um, the canon that we have in the arts as an example yeah. uh, of a spontaneous order. Right, nobody picked Shakespeare and Dante and and Virgil to be in the canon, but nonetheless, they are now literary canon. Um, So does that work inspire you at all? Or do you rather think of these things not so much as spontaneous order, but as a different type of order?
2: The idea of spontaneous order appeals uh, very much to me because it suggests uh, that's, to me, what happens in the social sphere. Uh, People form spontaneously families. They form spontaneous clubs or... uh, found uh, churches or scientific communities or music groups or neighborhoods or uh, just keep going. Um, and there's no one who dictates that, uh, no one who determines uh, from the uh, from above, uh, no authority. And actually enterprise also, you start that way. A couple of friends in a garage uh, start to do something, uh, play around a little bit and say, hey, um had movie about Suckerman uh, and, and, and Facebook is very clear on this. That's how these things start. There's instant society spontaneously. All great things start that way, basically. And that's also interesting that, that first you see how in the valorization, to use my term, uh, it at first gets valorized in the social sphere. Yeah, people start spontaneously to make art or music, but they then have to find people in the social sphere who uh, appreciate it, can uh, be critical about it, can contribute to it and that's what you do without any money changing hand or a government get involved and that's how it comes about. And in a later process these more formal structures get involved, organizations, uh, uh, markets, uh, buying and selling, but that's usually in the course of things, in the life of things only a later stage that that comes in. So yeah, spontaneity is the basis of all society. And of culture, I would say.
1: I, I want to yeah. um, go back to um, the the sort of movement that I think you, Don Lavoie and Deirdre McCloskey and uh, many others, I think Robert Solo was even quite open to it uh, in the 1990s, were part of the, the rhetoric of economics uh, literature. And I, I, I think that part of the point that you guys were making at the time is that the desire change in economics is as much in in terms of tone and style as it is in substance. And I think so far we've, we've talked quite a bit about, about substance, but um, that notion of tone and style, um, could you expand a little bit on that?
2: Yeah, I think that's more uh, Deirdre's point uh, than my point, but... Um Dider uh, 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 McCloskey, uh, who was, of course the, the the main person in, in this, um, took especially offence to uh, what she calls the sneering that goes on, uh, the sort of the, um, but she also took offence uh, against indeed sort of the what she called the blackboard economics, sort of the very limited way in which economists communicated. And what bothers her in particular is the sharp division, uh, the sharp line that, that economists tend to draw between uh, their discipline as a science and practices as poetry or philosophy. And, um,
1: but in your work also, right, we see, uh, we see the, the I word, yeah. which we're supposed to avoid in economic or academic writing more generally. Um, We find anecdotes. Um, We find what I would call a conversational style that's not too different from what you would use in a seminar room rather than the the split uh, in style that we see in uh, much of traditional academic work.
2: Yeah, in my my perception, uh, style and substance are very closely related. So the style you adopt because you want to communicate something. So... Um, if I use the I in my work and I use personal examples is because I uh, advocate a different stance from that that uh, economists usually take. Usually economists uh, take the stance of the objective scientist who uh, distances himself from the scene, so to say, puts himself away from it and objectifies by doing so the world, and tries to explain and predict it. That's the st- standard perspective. As uh, so you distance yourself. Um, in my book, I use the example of the elephant uh, that, that people look at and that scientists can have different perspectives on the same elephant. I actually try to imagine what it is if you are inside the family, uh, the elephant and try to figure out what gets the elephant to move and why you should go in one direction rather than the other. And there's different different stance because that means uh, that you have to emphasize with, with people, with the agents, so you can distance yourself. and You really try to figure out uh, what it is to do the right thing. So you also have to evolve yourself much more explicitly. And that goes also uh, to argue that, that knowledge uh, should be relevant somehow. And not towards the policymaker necessarily, but also to yourself or to others uh, paying to you, paying attention to you, um, and that can only be because you are getting involved in the action. And therefore, I take I I, I uh, take a very different stance. And so, by using the I, I actually want to suggest to the reader how by you. Uh, what would it would mean for you and how would you apply this in your own life i apply it in my life but what does it mean to you and that's what makes knowledge i think um, relevant if it can also be personal if you uh, can recognize it around you so that's why i also like when we talk always to to refer to situations right at hand and see whether what we are saying makes sense of what is at hand. Okay, Um, let me switch
1: gears a little. I I would like to talk about one of your entrepreneurial projects, which is the Academia Vitae, a university um, you started about 10 years ago. Um, What were your goals um, with setting up uh, your own university at the time?
2: I came from uh, the United States where you have a lively liberal arts uh, tradition to the, S- to the Netherlands where uh, you had much less so. Um, I missed that liberal arts uh, tradition. Uh, so I thought first I should start sort of a liberal arts college. But um, I had did also a project for a ministry about permanent education, and then it struck me how strange it is that we focus uh, universities on uh, 20 years old, whereas and that was my idea that um, 45 year olds might be much more need of this knowledge than 20 years old. Certainly, knowledge in terms of what the humanities provide and the philosophies provide. Um, And Academia Vitae was an an academy for life. Uh, That was the idea. So it it would serve all stages in life. And what I... So I did several programs for professionals. And there I was struck. And my book, Doing the Right Thing, was informed by that. Struck by by that these people had mainly... They had no technical questions, but personal questions. They wanted to know uh, what to do... um, and in all kinds of settings. And they were not so interested in the sort of abstract knowledge that we teach our 20-year-olds. Um, they wanted uh, to learn things that mattered to them. And I figured they wanted to know how to do the right thing, actually, in their own lives, in their companies, uh, in society. Uh, and so we read we, we at... Uh, Basically canonical text, Aristotle, but also Adam Smith and and Hobbes and Plato and uh, Erasmus and a whole variety. Um, And each time we would start with uh, a question that someone has, then go deep in the reading and in the end try to go back to the question and see whether that uh, reading and the discussion gave some new insight on that question. Um, That was our approach. And uh, yeah, I thought it was unbelievable, uh, fantastic what happened. I I found it really inspiring and so did many other people. Uh, But it was very hard to sustain when the recession started because then companies cut back on their education programs and it was much harder to get people to come and to pay.
1: Yeah, it really sounds like a a, a liberal arts project in the sense that you were trying to make uh, perhaps more resilient people, or not make, but to help people become more resilient uh, in a way. The program here is called uh, PPE, Philosophy, Politics and Economics. (laughs) Do you think that that's a step in the right direction, a sort of idea that the, the human sciences are really one?
2: Yeah. Well, I do think that the humans the human sciences you uh, are uh, becoming more important the older we get. Um, we have a hard time getting young kids uh, interested in them, but I have no problem finding five, 55-year-olds getting interested in them. Yeah. Um, PP is going in direction, I think there's still too much politics there and that sort of bothers me that science is so focused on politics Um, there's more in life than politics Um, there's more knowledge needed than just knowledge for politics apart from the fact that politicians don't care anyway Um, so yeah in my my book, uh, in my university it would be about the good life and the good society Uh,
1: Currently Bart Wilson and I, I think in the past Deirdre and uh, you have also used uh, the concept of humanomics uh, as an alternative uh, to economics. Uh, do you think of that as having a future or um, is, is, is there a banner that people can rally around?
2: Yeah. Um. Yeah, I just, just, I, I, in a way, I liked the word economics too. If you see in economics the word oikos and home and and then you go back to the original meaning that it had in uh, Aristotle. But uh, yeah, the question is if you ever win that battle. Uh, so introducing another term like humanomics uh, calls attention head to the difference. And that could make sense. So yes, in that sense, I support it. Um, and um, the risk is always that you appeal to sort of romantic uh, longings with people. Uh, and the economics that I uh, project is, yeah, some people call it romantic, but um, if I and you are thinking about what it takes to do the right thing, Uh, it has also some seriousness to it and sometimes I think also it's quite pragmatic I find it much more practical actually than uh, standard economics but it is closer to life in that sense I can recognize the term humanomics
1: so uh, one other theme that I would like to uh, discuss is that of audience I remember that in uh, Speaking of economics, you uh, used the phrase, whose applause are you seeking? Uh, And I think in your own career that has changed quite a bit, but I uh, am quite curious to know whose applause you are uh, seeking with this book, uh, Doing the Right Thing.
2: Yeah, I always, um, uh, when I was in in the United States, I always sort of was looking at people like Bob Heibronner, um, because he was not ha- only having an interesting position at the new school, but also was clearly a public intellectual who would write in the New York Review of Books and so, and was widely read. I mean, you find his uh, books in uh, in a normal bookstore, and um, and you have a few more people, of course, Hippolkruchman uh, and so. Um, but that was my always my, my hope um that that it would not be the, just the applause of fellow economists because that 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 was uh, somewhat disappointing so uh, most economists go to conferences and see that they get a hearing there so they seek indeed the applause of fellow economists and for the rest they don't care but that's not me um and of course, I identify and associate with people like Deirdre McCloskey, who also seeks an, an other audience besides economists. Although for her, uh, conventional economists are more important still than they are for me. Um, but when I went to the, to the Netherlands, I find that there it's much easier to be a in public intellectual. Uh, it's easier to get invitations for uh, radio and television. Um and that changed my role somewhat. And I have also read books more for public consumption. But it's always uh, tricky how you sort of negotiate uh, your place in academia among scholars and get their appreciation. Because I really seek that appreciation because I want to. my ambition is to contribute to scholarship while not losing the rest, so to say. Um, yeah. John Maynard Keynes is another example. Hayek, uh, had these people were able to speak to a much uh, broader uh, audience. Milton Friedman did also a very good job at that, um, and that's what I would emulate uh, if I am able to. That's another matter, uh, but that's what I would aspire for you. Yeah. So the notion of
1: making a contribution seems seems very uh, important in the work you're currently do. So in terms of talking to, um, your own graduate students or other young scholars, right? One, uh, one way I read you is saying is figure out what you really want to contribute to. Uh, but let's, uh, assume for the moment that they, uh, roughly have the same goals as you do. So they, they want to contribute to a broader, uh, societal, uh, conversation. They perhaps even want to, um, address their fellow human beings as uh, sort of economic citizens and everything. What, what, what would you think are um, good or smart choices to make? Um, and does academia uh, play an important role in the choices they should be making?
2: Yeah, I uh, usually encourage people like yourself to uh, also to excel in academia. Um, At the same time also to venture outside academia because I don't think that uh, you will find that more broader audience when you stick stay in academia and teach and do research. So uh, one other student of mine uh, whom I thought and still think of a great talent he first uh, worked as a journalist for a couple years I thought it was a risky strategy because it's hard to find your way back into academia yeah. after that. But he succeeded, although it set him back for quite a few years. He should have been professor, full professor already quite a while, uh, but because of this stint as a journalist. But what it really, uh, set him back, but it really contributes, though, to his style of writing and his sense of uh, how you can grab a broader public, because that's what he learned as a journalist. Um, I myself did something similar, although I find it more difficult when I was in the United States because then these, the campus is really uh, stimulating but also constraining and it's hard to get get away from it and find an audience beyond it. And You have to do that by writing books and articles in, in, uh, in newspapers and so. Or as Tyler Cohen does, uh, having a blog. Uh, he's really successful in, in becoming this public intellectual. Um, and, um, my, my yeah, so so um, write op-ed pieces, I would say. Um, and what happens then in countries like the Netherlands, then you get invited to give lectures. And before you know it, you become also part of another conversation, so to say. Um, so my advice is, yeah... F- It's good to have a basis in academia and venture out, although I must say that I see increasingly uh, the number of uh, people who actually don't bother with academia and sort of develop an intellectual life outside. I think that becomes more possible with the increasing restraints of academic life with the emphasis on publications and um, doing rigorous and therefore highly specialized world work uh, that some people like and others actually get frustrated with. Yeah.
1: So to return to this uh, idea that you seek the approval of not just your fellow economists but of a broader audience, the the idea of approval in Adam's is also very uh, central in Adam Smith's yeah. theory of the moral sentiments. In which, uh, at least in my view, it arguably leads from the approval of your own actions by yourself, uh, via the approval of others, to the approval by, uh, by God, ultimately, I, I would think, yeah. with this notion of benevolence. And I know that your father was a famous minister in the Netherlands. Is the notion of God or uh, the transcendental an important uh, part in your life or in your work? So this notion that we ultimately seek approval, not just of others, but of something that's bigger than us?
2: Yeah, that, that looms always somewhere in the background. And uh, I do make it quite explicit in doing the right thing, that I say hey, we can strive for personal goods, social goods, society goods, and transcendental goods, uh, because I do think that people are in spiritual beings, and seek something that is beyond the here and the now, seeking the Holy Grail of enlightenment or uh, God's grace. um, And some people uh, experience that more explicitly than others, but it's always somewhere there. Uh, In doing the right, I try to make it more explicit. And that's also true for myself. Because I think that in the end, that's all. Uh, if you can ask yourself, what what am I doing this for? Uh, we we end up with the transcendental. And incidentally, uh, I do this 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 work quite a bit with professionals, and I was just surprised that I find that that the transcendental gives always trouble. Uh, scientists, uh, scholars uh, don't want to sort of dwell with that. Uh, they find it uncomfortable. And where I had the easiest time to sort of define it and, and identify it was with technicians uh, at the University of Telft and Technical University. Uh, when I did this exercise, I do a few exercises uh, exploring this, then I found that they, for them the transcendental goal is the overriding one. And that it shows itself that they are really in search of the perfect machine, the perfect technique, the 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 perfect material, and everything they do is subordinate to that, it becomes kind of, kind of a religion, um, and sort of nice uh, in there. It's sort of naive the way they articulate it, but it becomes so obvious, and to them too, it was for them also came as an insight that they have that transcendental. They don't really care about the applications. It's fun, is there, there, but that's not what they do it for. They do it really because they want to see whether this sort of impossible is possible, the, per, the equivalent from perpetual mobile Can can I construct that? That is sort of what they pursue.
1: Um, if, if I hear you talk about this, I am tempted to think of some of the things that happened in economics in the second half of the 20th century when people started looking for the the existence of a general equilibrium. Um, It became very much about theoretical truths rather than anything else. Would you say that they were pursuing a transcendental uh, good when they were engaged in the search for the sort of general equilibrium model and its existence?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure that that many of them would would have recognized it as such, but it developed in what you (coughs) could call what I call praxis, and that's a practice that contains its own goal. So it's pointless then to ask what is that good for. So what I understand from, and I have talked with these sort of general academic theorists, uh, they're really pursuing something and and often something aesthetical. Uh, for them, the beauty of it is is really an important value. Uh, the symmetry of it that uh, and the the neatness of the solution that's also uh, that they will exclaim. How neat, how perfect, how beautiful. Um, and, um, and when you recognize that, then it's much easier to talk with them because uh, then it's not so, huh, what are the applications or what policy purpose does it serve? Because that's not what is on their mind. And they po- totally engaged in this practice and that's good enough for them. And usually they have a strong mathematical mindset. Mathematicians have this clearly so. But musicians for that matter too. And it's sort of striking how often when these people engage these things, what uh, that they have a similar affinity for music. And, and, for, and for them, uh, the practical is of no relevance. Yeah, that has a sort of transcendental... Um, um glue uh, color to it right that is the
1: so if, if I think of other transcendental uh, goods that people might be striving for I th- I think of my my own uh, work I I developed the idea that we want to contribute to a bigger tradition or a, a civilization that we're part of. but the way I hear you talk about it now, the notion of transcendental goods, They can even be uh, somewhat dangerous, the pursuit of this this one big goal that's out there that makes us disregard uh, questions of relevance or practicalities. Is that a fair reading of what you were just saying or not so much? Yeah,
2: but that's why in my model, uh, you always have to, uh, the broader picture always uh, calls attention to the balance that is needed. If I, my, my, Friend who practices Zen I find sometimes most unpractical so I was rather amused when he got a child at late age and I sort of confronted him that he could pr- continue to practice Zen but that wouldn't uh, do much good bringing up his child and now he had to deal with other aspects of life that he never was so interested in his Zen practice. Um, Yeah, that's the balancing act that you and I have. And it's always dangerous if people latch onto one practice and one logic, ignoring all the others. So if people think that the market is everything or that the home is everything or government is everything or... If people think that uh, only personal values matter or only transcendental values, but that that is always that's why I I try to to at least to have an, a sort of broader picture with different elements. So if someone highlights and, and accentuates one, yeah, then things get drawn out of context, and that leads to danger. That's right. So two questions before
1: we uh, we end this uh, interview. The first is, um, I think recently we've seen quite a few almost self-help books by economists. Um, they uh, frequently come from the incentive le- literature, and they ask us to uh, set smarter incentives in our own lives, either by committing to some saving scheme or perhaps even given uh, the people that we do economic business with better incentives. Um, do you see your own book as being as all related to these uh, self-help books uh, that are currently on the market? Um, and um, is that an issue? Or
2: Yeah, that's. I, I would not be pleased if my book ends up in that section of the bookmark, uh, book uh, uh, shop. Uh, but it has an element to it because it does make you reflect on your own life. Um and it makes you aware of certain aspects of your life that you otherwise will might not be aware of. But if I look at the self-help books on economics, then that's what Deirdre McCloskey would say, prudence-only kind of advice, how to be prudent. And that's only part of it, um, that, that you are taking into account the cost and that you've figure out how you deal with the monetary uh, uh, issues. But uh, in my book, uh, I suggest that life is about a great deal more than that. And for example, if you care about love, then you better figure out how to have a loving relationship. If you want to make art, you better think about how to be part of an artistic community uh, and that requires uh, processes that are quite different from the prudence only uh, approach of these uh, economic self-help books. Um, Yeah. So, and self-help books, have, of course, have gotten a bad name, but in the end, any philosophy book or any sort of uh, humanities book that in some way or another doesn't contribute to a realization of the good life, I ask, then, what else want it, does it want to aspire? So, yeah, my purpose is to figure out how you can contribute to a good life and a good society.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: Um, you now spend a week here at uh,
1: the Hayek program in the Mercatus Center and all around uh, George Mason campus, and I uh, think also back at George Washington. Um, what, what did you appreciate most of, your, uh, of the, all the activities here and the uh, things going on with the program?
2: Yeah, the, the, for me it is it's just a warm bath because uh, of course I still teach in, in Holland but in the Dutch culture and uh, I taught uh, for many years here in the United States and what I always remember and now fortunately in, uh, confirmed that there is here sort of an, a culture of uh, intellectual discourse where you engage, you are critical... You don't hold back. You are honest, but you are serious about it. And we read each other's work and we critique it. And to me, that is uh, uh, incredibly inspiring. Um, uh, so I'm very pleased. And it also, uh, it's also a sort of nostalgia because I'm reminded of the old times uh, when Don LaVoy and so was still here. And to see that uh, it really gives me a good feeling that that... Spirit is still here and alive, and um, so that's actually the most important thing. Apart from, it's always when you go back to a place uh, where you were years before uh, that brings all the old feelings, and you're reminded of what you left behind. Uh, so that is doing that too for me. But the high point is really, uh, yeah, the the liveliness of the intellectual discussion here. And in my own in terms of my bone book, there's a great shared good that people share here. And not everyone may always be aware of what a great source that is a great source for uh, inspiration, for intellectual work. And that's, of course, also what brings you here uh, that you also can sort of uh, draw on this source and benefit from it and contribute to it, because that is uh, what you do by, by being here. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, very pleased that this exists. It has a great uh, option value for me.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Professor Klamer, for this great interview.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Programme podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Programme, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.